Oh, that's a lovely goal. Well done. That was some goal. David made of the pitch. Look at the way he takes her on the run. Watch. He just just okay. sort of a half volley. Is it over? No, another uh, thirty seconds or so. It's over now. There was over now. He played full time. I don't know. This 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 is the first All Ireland for years. I haven't been there now on duty. Yeah. Can you imagine the coach now? With I was the, just the, thinking underneath the tunnel. The, the tunnel. And and you're all linking arms. You're linking arms, trying to keep the crowd back. Yeah, it's great. There's a great sense of excitement just at that stage, isn't there? There's a super. Full hand. And Michael Donovan. What are we doing? Directing operations. Keep back to swap up. Bring in the Casper. <laughs> Oh, Louis Newton. Fantasy. Fantasy. The hill looks well, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen it since it was done. A bunch of Irish Gardaí sit in a house in the dusty town of Oshikati in Ovamboland, northern Namibia. They watch a month-old video of the All-Ireland hurling final. They know the score but have not previously seen the game. They try to feel the excitement of Nicky English's wonderful last-minute goal. Yet, somehow, they seem to feel more emotion watching their colleagues control the crowd as the Tipperary players head towards the Hogan stand to collect the McCarthy Cup and their medals. One part of their minds longs for the familiar, another part relishes the unknown that presents itself daily to them. On this, the Garda Shiakana's first overseas mission with the United Nations. That's a TK-57, I think it's called. It's a Russian landmine. It would be used by the Swapo uh, guerrillas uh, against this, the South West African police and also the South African army. Now, as you can see, we're about less than a mile from Oshikati. And uh, this is the first little minor road that you leave as you leave Ashikati. It's about 200 yards off the road. It was planted here sometime in the, during the war here in April. Um, we were driving along the road here one day. And just so that's this April. This was that's the, this the, April. This was the incursion. This was the incursion right. by Swapo in April, April after April the first. We were driving along the road one day, and two or three of the local people jumped out and told us to not go any further. So when we inquired a little bit more, they explained that there had been landmines planted here during the night. So we came up by foot, they showed us where the landmine was, and we contacted the South African Army. And they came out and they took out the charger. About 500 miles north of Vintuk, we're about 20 miles, less than 20 miles from the Angolan border. Oshikati, the base we live in, is strictly uh, a military base. There's nothing else in Oshikati. There's no town. There's no, shall we say, main street. There's no industries outside of the base. The Ovambos live in their traditional corrals, etc. 
the military base that we live in has only been planted here the last 20 years. If if there was no war going on, this wouldn't be here at all. It would just be open countryside. So the facilities, as you can imagine, are not what you would find in a normal city or a normal town. We don't, for instance, all the lads here, we have to go about 300 miles to get our hair cut down to a place called Chumeb. Um, we buy our cornflakes in, bo- in bulk down in Vintook when we go down, any of the lads go down. Those type of things are not s- supplied up here. So it's, it's, it's quite isolated where we are at the moment. Oh, Welsh Caddy's a place we know well Where monitors go if they don't go to hell Where the weather is hot and mosquitoes do play And the cooper are scuttered in the Caspers all day The Caspiers are the huge armoured personnel carriers which have intimidated the people in South Africa's townships and in the war zone of northern Namibia for years. The Kufut are a frightening counterinsurgency unit which specialised in gathering information and killing anyone they thought might be in SWAPO, the South West Africa People's Organisation, which won the November elections which were held under free and fair conditions, largely due to the work of the Gardaí and the other members of the United Nations Transition Assistance Group, which came to bring Africa's last colony to independence. And the super who in the song was crying in pain for the want of post in isolated Oshakati is Superintendent Peter Fitzgerald, who commands the UN police in the Northern District, a group of over 500 policemen monitoring the impartiality of SWAPOL, the local South African-controlled police, in an area almost twice the size of Ireland. Basically, our function here is to monitor the South West African Police Force and within that, uh, we have to also do as much as we can to ensure that the election, when it comes up, is free and that the election is fair. Uh, our function, therefore, is to ensure that all cases of intimidation that are reported either to us or to the South West African Police are investigated by them properly, and we go with them when they're carrying out their investigations to ensure that these investigations are carried out as they should be. Peter Fitzgerald is number two in the Irish police contingent of 50, which is part of the 1,500-strong group from 23 countries monitoring the South West Africa police. The senior Irish officer is Chief Superintendent Noel Anderson, who's in charge of the Vintook district, which stretches from the capital to the coast. The first of the UN monitors arrived in Vintook last April. First of all, as you know, we were the first monitors in actual fact that left for the mission area and when we arrived initially was to get sort of a working accommodation, get ourselves established and we went, uh, we worked out a Sinohoff base initially and uh, including the Commissioner, Mr Fanning, and um, at that stage we just had three, three rooms uh, and from there we sort of built our, our organisation. Uh, accommodation for our own people while we got fixed up in the state hospital. It wasn't ideal, but it was quite good. It was uh, reasonably comfortable, and we had access to the state canteen, the state hospital canteen for meals. Um, after three or four days, then my colleagues then split up and moved off up to Washakati. So that's where the team, in actual fact, divided at, at, that, that, at that particular stage. When we arrived, things were very, very bleak in the north. Uh, first of all, um, in relation to things like office facilities and accommodation, uh, they d- just didn't exist. Uh, we started off in a room in a house. Um, on our arrival, we found that the Kufus, who are a counter-insurgency unit attached to the local South West African Police Force, were patrolling the streets and patrolling the area in Caspers, which are large armour-protected vehicles. Um, the people in the area were terrified by these vehicles and they were a great source of intimidation. 
Uh, we found uh, that when we came here, the people uh, that were supporting, in particular the, the Swapo party, were afraid to wear the Swapo colours, they were afraid to carry the flags, they were afraid to hold political rallies. And any of them that did were, were, were um, assaulted, they were intimidated, they were threatened, they were even arrested and beaten. Um, I think it's very encouraging at this stage uh, to look out on the street as one can any day of the week and see these same supporters now going by in their colours, wearing their shirts, singing their songs, holding their rallies and with no fear of being intimidated for doing these things. The first major event, I suppose, when we came up here around the 20th of April was, I think, the 28th of April, we escorted 27 and 28 plan fighters to the Angolan border. And That's the Swapo Army. Yeah, that's the the uh, guerrilla end of the, of the Swapo uh, army. And uh, we brought them with Malbat to the border and they were handed across the border at uh, Ruokana. So that was a big event at that time. A lot of media coverage, etc. What was your feeling about that whole operation? Well, we were very much involved in it. Myself, Peter Kenny and Pat Leahy, we had um, four plan persons in the vehicle with us and we found it very interesting to converse with them. Most of them could speak quite good English. And quite a few of them had spent uh, time abroad. Uh, one of the guys actually uh, studied music in Cuba, which was an unusual uh, pastime for a, a guerrilla fighter, you know. Garda Pat Barron's first encounter with plan fighters, members of the Swapo guerrilla army, after they had arrived armed where they should not have been, south of the Angolan border last April. Over 400 of them were killed by South African forces. It was not the welcome home they'd hoped for. It was also hardly what the Gardaí had expected. Nor did they expect to have to stand up in the pulpits of churches of many denominations to explain their role in the country. In the township of Katatura, where blacks had to live outside Vinthook, Garda Pat Conway was one of the first to have to break the ice for the UN monitors. When we came here first, we were actually out here. We were three weeks out here. It was our first station. And uh, it's totally different. There's no comparison with, with the problems that are out here and what we face in town. Here, there's total social deprivation. There's people living 16, 17 to a house, large families, the problem with alcoholism and unemployment, all the social problems that you can associate with such 50 or 60,000 people all living together in such a small area. I think the, the, the doors say what tribe is supposed to be living uh, in a particular house and we've come through an area with some DTA flags and that was a Herero area but I see all the Swabo flags up here so this must be the Ovambo area. This actually is the market, this area here is the market. This is the mar you can get everything here from meat, a haircut, your shoes, your laundry done, everything. You can get everything here, buy a car, do whatever you want. It's all here, all spread out in front of you. What about contact uh, with the people when you were out here? What what sort of preoccupations did they have? What were they saying to you? How much do you think you were able to get to know them? Well, we were out here or originally. We went to all the schools. Uh, we used to trip around to all the schools in the daytimes and the, and the youth clubs and the cubs. And we talked to them, explained our function, what we were here for, and, uh, you know, explained where we come from and where our station was and what our function was and they used to come down and get posters and stickers off us and we'd bring them into the school so they could put them up and explain exactly the function of UNTAG in general and us as police mothers what we were here for so they could tell their parents because a lot of the parents cannot speak English but the children can they're learning English at school when we left here the Jamaicans took over and because they were black they were even more interesting to the people they were delighted to see black policemen friendly black policemen the only crime Pat Conway and his partner Ted Murphy had to report that Saturday afternoon as they accompanied a Swapo patrol in Vintook 
was the theft of a child's bicycle. The opulent white suburbs of the capital were quiet as the residents watched a rugby match. In the north, the terrain is rougher, as I discovered bouncing over it, standing up in a caspier, always looking ahead, ready to duck to avoid low branches on the scrawny trees. The UN caspier was accompanying two Swapo caspiers from the station at Ohanguina. Guarded Tom Scully shared the driving with a policeman from Guyana in South America. Tom and three other guards had arrived a month previously at Ohanguina from the even less hospitable Inhana. It's worse. Inhana was a terrible place. Uh, Ohanguina is a paradise compared to it. Well, describe the two of them to me, will you? Well, uh, I'll start with uh, Ohanguina. Uh, four of us uh, share a prefab uh, porta cabin type uh, building. There's uh, two bedrooms and uh, a toilet and a shower. Now, this is a palace compared to Inhana, where we uh, lived in a caravan. Uh, there was one toilet between 40 guys and the water didn't work most of the time. Uh, we're very happy in Ohanguena. In Oshukati, Peter Fitzgerald feels the days of privation are over. Uh, when we came up originally, there were 25 of us in two houses. Um, we now have the luxury of having only seven of us in a house. Um, most of us, as young constables, would have lived in police stations. I myself started as a guard in Pier Street in Dublin and I lived for several years uh, in a room with six other guards uh, in Pier Street. And most of the men that are with me now would have at some stage lived in Garda stations and uh, would have experienced living with other with other men. Um, I suppose if one were to, to, to look at our surroundings today, we have reasonable conditions. Um, initially we had no hot water, we had no cooking facilities, we had no showers even. Now at least we have hot water and we have one shower between six of us. We're not doing too bad really. And then there's Ruakana up on the Angolan border where Sergeant Leo McGinn and five Gardaí are stationed. The problems with Ruakana would be its remoteness. Uh, the location, you're 170 kilometres north of Oshikati. But then again when you're in Oshikati, where are you? Um, I'd also class it rather remote. Coming up here, the first thing we learned was it was easier to get whiskey than it is to get tomatoes or fresh vegetables. And we found that to be true. Well, we're not that we're looking for the whiskey, but we're certainly looking for the, the fresh vegetables. Um, inaccessibility is the problem with this location. Uh, certainly you have a tarred road, but you're two hours away from the nearest, the next white man, I suppose. But of course, having come out uh, in the second phase, you, you had, there were people here before. Did you know enough about what you were going to come into or did you think it was going to be a little city, town? Jim? Before we came out, we, we did a, a, a week-long course in, in headquarters and, and they briefed us well, they prepared us well and they issued us with uh, equipment that has proved very useful and the type of clothing we were issued with proved very useful and... Um, the uh, medical treatment and the uh, way we were prepared before we came out by the guard, the surgeon, uh, was more than adequate, and we find that we're one of the better prepared police forces that that are here in Namibia. But was there anything that you weren't expecting? Even though you know, as I say, there were there was a bunch of guards out before you. Were there still things that took you by surprise? In other words, is it possible to learn it at Garda headquarters, or do you have to have be on the ground before you actually know? How do you imagine Namibia when you're not here, Seamus? I don't think you will actually ever experience Namibia until you actually arrive and see it for yourself. You can learn these things from books, theoretically, but in practical, it's always the best to come here and experience it because things are totally different, very different. Well, can you say what's different? Can you say now 
really what a surprise just since you came. You hear about people living in, in corrals and th their conditions and how they live and their culture. Um, for example, the Hemba, they're the fifth most primitive tribe in the world. And you can visualize these things in your own mind, but when you come and see them and see exactly how they live and their conditions, it's just a massive culture shock to you. And how would you describe them? Uh, from my first impression was that uh, I just stood back and looked at them and said, God, these people are unbelievable as to how they live. I, 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 I categorise them as, as, as Stone Age people living in a Stone Age world who haven't experienced westernised customs or, or, or um, ordinary, everyday living things like uh, commodities, for mm. example. What, are, what other things have, have surprised you, Bill? Anything else that's, that's particularly struck you as strange? Uh, no, I suppose that just the temperatures, I suppose, are extreme, but I think we've, we've all adjusted quite well to it. Um, not just the people's way of life, the locals. They're very primitive in the way they, they do live. No hurling. Yes. <laughs> no hurling, no hurling. <laughs> Most of the, the different tribes around are very primitive compared to what we thought they were like, you know. Mm. But... By no means backward in the way they are. They are quite intelligent and, and clever in their own ways. And what about social life? What do you do? How do you, you know, when you come off duty, do you come back to this house, which is a very fine house, but obviously sparsely furnished? You're not going to stay here for the whole of your life. So it lacks the home comforts, doesn't it? Well, uh, we've done the most we can to make the house a home. Uh, we get all get on very well together. We eat mainly uh, the Irish dishes. There's some fine or some excellent, excellent cooks here. But again, when you mention social life, what we were used to back at home doesn't exist out here. There are no pubs. There are no discos. Correction. No, Correction. no. Uh, <laughs> What's wrong, Seamus? There, there are too many pubs here. Too many pubs. <laughs> the, the equivalent to a cooker shop. Yeah, but they are not places we frequent. Uh, social, li social life has, has, has taken a major, a major turn. And, uh, it's something I look forward to getting back to, to the, the old scene uh, at home. And Sally O'Brien, certainly. Leo McGinn at Ruakana with his colleagues Jim Mitchell, Seamus Tracy and Bill MacDonald, claiming the local pubs aren't for them. Tom Scully and the lads at Ohanguina are also thrown back on their own resources for social life. Well, it's, it's pretty bad. You have to do make your own thing. Uh, we're working most of the time. Uh, we finish up around six in the evening when we uh, get something to eat. Generally we have a type of a barbecue and one of the guys got a guitar and we uh, light a fire and sing Irish songs around it till, dark, till midnight and then go to bed. And that's about it. And what about the, the, the other people, the police from other countries? Is there much interrelation between you? Well, there is. We we're, get on very well with uh, all the nationalities here. We have Norwegians, uh, Nigerians, Pakistanis, Moroccans... Guyanas, or Guyanans, uh, in South America that is. Uh, we have guys from Ghana in South Africa. There's a Russian, he's in the, he's not Sivpol now, he's in uh, the other side of things. And, um, that's about it, there's, there's a lot of nationalities here and we all get on very well. So have they learned any Irish songs, have they? Oh they have, we have them singing uh, Nora and Red is the Rose and uh, Spansel Hill. <laughs> None of which songs were sung by the Gardaí when they had their first get-together of the whole Irish contingent at Tsumeb, halfway between Vinthook and Oshakati, in October, six months into their year-long mission. 
but aided by the guitars of Tom London, Barry Worrell and Larry Cody, not to mention the occasional glass for the non-pioneers, they did manage some other Irish ballads. I've been a while over for many Since last they met, they had been through a lot. First, they had to establish some sort of relationship with the police whose performance they'd come to monitor. Tom London, Peter Kenny and Noel Anderson spoke about that. Then came the task of registering the 700,000 voters who chose the Constituent Assembly which will write the Constitution for Namibia's independence. Tom London spent time in the bush as those who live far from the towns signed their names or placed their thumbprints. When we first arrived at the Swapple they were very much under the impression I think that if they ignored us and that they kind of insulted us enough that we'd all go away but slowly but surely they began to realise over the last six months that uh, like we're here to stay we're here till next April and we're going to see this process through they've come around quite well I am now since finishing the registration I'm on what's known as an investigation team and my job is to go out with a local detective from the local police force to uh, investigate assault cases or intimidation cases particularly of a political nature say a, a SWAPO person comes in and says that he was beaten or his house was burnt down by uh, DTA supporters which would be the opposition party to SWAPO um, it is up to me to make sure that the detective mon- does that investigation properly there has been allegations in the past that if a SWAPO person made an allegation or if a SWAPO person was beaten up that the, the local police force took no action so now my job is to make sure that, that everyone is treated fairly here. Possibly the first time I um, went to a murder scene would probably be the, the biggest um, incident that happened to me and um, the way it was investigated and the total interest in life here and it give, like how life is so cheap. Like, and in comparison to home, like when an investigation could last weeks, the whole investigation was over here in about 10 minutes. A murder at home like, is investigated right from the scene and preservation of the scene and statements from witnesses and um, photography, forensic, like it would be a major investigation, whereas here um, they don't seem to put in the effort, possibly the fact that there's more murders here and more instances of a serious nature here than at home, but they don't seem to have, first of all I would say the experience, second of all the facilities for investigating these type of um, incidents. Uh, initially um, I suppose it would be, it'd be fair to say there was a certain coolness there. Um, no police force uh, likes another police force looking over their shoulder but this was part of the overall uh, mandate, the UN mandate Um, initially when we came here there was a rally or a meeting uh, within a very short time of arrival and I was quite surprised actually first of all the strength of the Swapple turned out and they were extremely heavily armed whereas recently now we had the major rally with the um, uh, the president of Swapple Mr Samuel Newman 
Um, the Swapple turned out, but not as heavily armed, and uh, the Morris kept a very low profile, kept in the, in the background, so to speak, whereas in actual fact the untagged Civ politers, uh, monitors went on a very high profile on that particular rally. So they have changed, and um, most interestingly also, they have met the Swapple people here in relation to that particular rally with two very good meetings and two very constructive meetings, and uh, the situation has improved very, very much, particularly in the last couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm glad to say they have improved. We're getting on. We're getting on professionally well with them. Don't always see eye to eye and things. Um, that, that's the way. But if we're not happy about something, we, we will, we will, t- we will put our cards on the table and we'll tell them why. Tom, during the, the registration period, which went on for a number of weeks, uh, you were going out into rural areas and you were living for, I think, about a week at a time uh, in the bush. Yeah, that's correct. Not something you're used to. No, no. Uh, it's not like Kilsheelan in Tipperary, anyway. Um, I was on what was known as a bush team. Our job was to go out and register the people to vote. There had been an election in Namibia about ten years ago, but uh, Swapo at the time had told the people not to vote. So the vast majority of people in Ovambuland had never registered before. Now, our job was... To, there was a team put together of South African Namibian people they would be civil servants who came in to register. And there was a UN civilian. He would be monitoring the, the South African people to make sure that they were registering the votes properly. My job was to monitor the policeman who was with the team. We spent five weeks living out in the bush. Uh, we were about 200 miles south of Ashikati. We were just along the border of Itoshipan, which is a huge game reserve here in Namibia. It's about half the size of Ireland. And we worked, it was a very, very isolated area, very much so. What were conditions like? How did, you, how did you live? What did you live on? Where did you sleep? We slept out in the open. We slept in sleeping bags. Just uh, We lit a campfire. We would stay in each place about two or three days. Um, we would find a clearing in the bush. We'd light a fire, set up a camp for the night, sleep around uh, on the ground. There was about nine of bamboos who would be uh, in the civil service here, what they call the Ovambu administration. They were part of the registration team, and they were a great help to me in particular in teaching me how to live in the bush. We'd go out each evening to usually the local headman who we'd been with all day, and he would sell us a goat for about £20. The Ovambus would then bring it back to the camp. They would kill it, they would skin it, and they would cut the meat up for the night, and then we would cook it over an open fire. So I had delicacies like uh, goat's brains and sheep's eyes, these types of, as I say, it's not Kilsheelan and Tipperary. How did you take to those? Um, it's like a lot of those type of delicacies. If you didn't know what it was, it's quite nice. It's the hardest part is knowing what you're eating. But um, it's like this, when you're hungry, you eat anything. <laughs> well, any strange adventures? Yes, uh, one particular night we were asleep in the, in the camps. It was about three o'clock in the morning. We, as I say, we were right north of the wild game reserve you could hear elephants you could hear lions hyenas particular particularly now hyenas and one night uh, the head of Vambo who was with me I got on quite well with him Titus was his name and Titus said to me he says I, I, I can smell a hyena and hyena eats rotten meat the carcasses of dead animals and there's an extremely bad smell of dead meat off the animal and he could I couldn't smell it now but he could smell it alright but during that night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke to what really was the most terrible smell I have ever got. And I jumped up and the hyenas were eating the meat off the tree that we cut during the night. And the Uvambos were off shooting their weapons at them. They all carry rifles with them in the bush. And they were all up running after them into the bush trying to shoot them. 
Well, was there any danger there from the hyenas? <laughs> yes, the, the Ovambos and the South Africans were telling me that um, the South Africans are great people to go out and hunt and stay in the bush for a week on an end. They have what's called a braai, what we call it a barbecue at home. And they a few beers and they eat a lot of meat. They're great meat eaters in this country. And they'd fall asleep at night time. And with the, the, with the drink, they'd be sleeping fairly heavy. During the dry season, game becomes a bit scarce. And what happens is the hyena can smell the meat from the camp. And it will come into the camp and it can actually smell the meat from the man's mouth. And uh, there has been cases of where the hyenas actually attack people. A hyena has the most powerful jaws in the world. It's more powerful than any other animal. And there's been many cases where they've killed a man in his sleep, you know. So they are quite dangerous. This time of the year, not too bad because you have the rain season, a lot of game around. It's a first-time UN mission for the Gardaí, and it has not been without its difficulties. They came unsure of what to expect from other police forces. Would the others be better prepared, better trained? Would their police methods stand the test better? The answer has been no. Former Assistant Commissioner Stephen Fanning is the head of the UN police. The two leaders of the Irish contingent, Noel Anderson and Peter Fitzgerald, command the two most prestigious and challenging districts. They and the men under them have performed with credit through the difficult settling-in period, through registration of voters, through the election campaign when the North in particular lived on the edge of inter-party violence, through the election which went off well, and so far through its aftermath when again the North has seen limited violence. They did it by teamwork and commitment, above all through sticking closely together, though in isolated places like Ruakana, they shared their togetherness with the New Zealanders, the Fijians, the Germans and others. Martin Bushell and Jim Mitchell explained. Every country has sent out their own contingent and they're all familiar with their own people. It's like the devil you know and the devil you don't know. So as we're all Irish, we're all familiar with each other, our own ways. The six of us here have got quite close together living in the one house. So you know who you can depend on, who you can't depend on. Some of the other nationalities we have found maybe not as well trained as us, we can't depend on them as much. So from that point of view, we stick together fairly closely. But as regards the work side of it, when we were out on patrol, we are all mixed. We get on well with the other guys they call to the house here, as we said before. But um, I, I think there is a closeness there, but it's, it's not an agreement we've come to. It's just a thing that has happened from coming out here in a group. What about, what about the people, the other people, the other police forces, uh, mixing with them, getting involved with them? Today, while we've been in the house, there have been uh, Germans, New Zealanders in here with Fijians just come across the road, waving in. But that's at a very superficial level. Does it go any deeper than that? Well, the Jim? Irish house, the Irish house it, it appears to be like a visiting house. That uh, The door is here, it's open, and, it's and, and uh, they're in and out of it, and, and they're more often in this house than they are in their own house. The Europeans, we have a, we are, we have a lot in common with, food-wise and, and uh, lifestyles. Some of the African countries, we are, we are slightly different, but uh, you know, we are learning a lot from them, and they're also picking up a little from us but by and large here things are fine and when it comes to the pub sing song a passing dane might be able to turn the tables on the irish who prepare to recoil from a nordic ditty Till 
But I can play another song. <laughs> Apart from the occasional attempt at sabotage by Danes and Swedes, the night at Zumeb, which brought all the Guardi together for the first time, was a wholly Irish and sometimes sentimental affair. Eyes wide and green You ride the horse so well Hands light to the touch I could never go with you No matter how I wanted to Ride on As Larry Cody's voice and guitar lead us into a Christy Moore session, it's perhaps time to ask what our policemen in Namibia miss most during their long duty overseas. First, Peter Kenny and Pat Barron. Well, there are a lot of things that the normal run-of-the-mill things that you miss from home, like the food here obviously is different, the weather, the climate is much different. Um, like, the things that I missed most, to be honest, is going to the All-Ireland final, going to Crow Park, going to the football final meeting the lads after it, having a few pints and those things I miss, like we've got all the videos but you know the result nine times out of ten and the atmosphere isn't the same and like still we've sat down and watched matches and probably treated them like as if we were there and made our own bit of atmosphere but still deep down you feel it's five, six weeks after the event and it probably doesn't create the same impression on you as it would have if you were there. Social life because our social life evolves mostly around ourselves here Whereas at home you have your friends to socialise with, etc. Um, I miss the seasons as well. You look out the window here in the morning and you don't ask yourself, is it going to rain? The sun shines every day. And now as we're approaching high summer here, each day is becoming warmer and warmer. And no doubt sleep here is going to become a problem for a few weeks until we really climatise to it. The green grass of Ireland, of course, everything here is dull, yellow. Just generally Ireland and... Uh, life in Ireland. I hear my Casper calling, it's rolling round the bend, I haven't seen windows since I don't know when, I volunteered in Dublin, seems like years ago, and I'm stuck in Oshagabi, and I want to go. Saying we have here in the morning when we get up, uh, we look out and say, well, any rain today? Exactly. <laughs> you know, every day temperatures rise to about 40, 43, and some rain will be nice occasionally. Well, that'll come, it'll come, that'll come, it'll come in about a month's time. Anything else missed? The seasons, I suppose, yeah. We all, we all, think, um, we all think about October, <laughs> and we kind of dream what October is like at home. And, but here it's just the same the whole time, heat all the time. That's what I miss, I suppose. But there must be a commodity. There must be some commodity that you can't get 170 kilometres from a shop, and even when you get the 170 kilometres, it's not there. What is it you, you most miss? Well, I think in general at home, most of us probably when we're going to work or come for work, we usually drop in and get a newspaper. Mm. It's one thing you can't get here. No way. Unless you get some of the local papers, which they're not very 
close to us here either. It's 110 miles to Ashikati, I think, for the nearest one. So, other than that, the fresh pint of milk. <laughs> the fresh pint of milk. We have again. We have to go to make a cup of tea. We have to go to Ashikati to get the the drop of milk to put into it. So it's grand. But that's one thing that you'd miss and good quality tea. I suppose professionally the greatest difficulty was starting from scratch uh, in early April uh, without even a typewriter, without even um, envelopes or paper. We started in a room in a private house uh, with my own 17 monitors from Ireland. I now find myself in charge of a district with 560 monitors from 23 different countries. We had to set up that district. We had to set up each of my 12 stations. We had to equip those stations. I even had to go out and negotiate with the local headmen for the for the for the ground on which these stations were built. So that has been a tremendous challenge, and it has been a very enjoyable challenge. And uh, I think at this stage that we have a reasonably efficient uh, district. Uh, we hope to improve on that as time goes on, and indeed, uh, daily we do improve on it. But I think, as things stand, we have a reasonably efficient district. On a personal level, I think uh, the biggest problem is is being away from my wife and children. Ruakana, that was Seamus Tracy, Bill McDonald, Jim Mitchell and Leo McGinn, and in Oshakati, Superintendent Peter Fitzgerald. Of course, all of them said what they missed most was the family. However, together they feel they all miss home and those they love. In Oshakati, they live in three houses, only one of which has a TV and video. We had to break in to watch that hurling final because the residents of the TV house were either home on leave or out on duty. And so some of the lonely hours are spent writing and singing songs, like the Casper song you've just heard, sung by Pat Barron, Jermit O'Shea, Alan Murray, John Kelly, Barry Worrell, Tom London, Jim Hessian, Peter Kenny and Ollie Goggin. If any of this gets home, as I say, you won't even be able to drink a calibre. Yeah. <laughs> anywhere, anywhere, watch, in Dublin. Dublin. <laughs> anywhere in Dublin. Drink so much as a, a riffy garnish, you're in trouble. <laughs> they can sing songs and crack jokes, but the work is often demanding in a physical sense, particularly when on Casper patrol. Tom London showed me over to Caspier. He and Tom Scully took me out on patrol in one, accompanying two local police Caspiers. It sits about ten people. They, when they went out on patrol, they usually went out with four of these, and they went with a, a machine called the Blesbok. That's the machine that would carry all their equipment. And you, in this you would have eight local Ovambus, and you would have two South Africans, and there would be a 40-man team, as I say, four Caspiers. And of the eight whites that would be there, there was one white who would be in charge of the company. They call it Zulu Company, Alpha Company or whatever. They're a fantastic machine. They're, an anti, they're built for the bush, specifically for the bush. They are anti-mine. They weigh about 12 tonne. And I've seen cases where these have actually hit a landmine. And all they have done is just had to change the wheel. That's all. They're totally protective. They're very, very good. The South Africans swear by them. Um, I've got double glazed 
Yeah, the, all the windows along the side, they're only narrow windows. Um, they're all bulletproof and they've been tested time and time again. We've seen lots of cases where they have been hit by bullets and they're just a crack in them, but they are bulletproof. It's you the little slats here for, for, for shooting Yeah, at beside each chair, each sheet on inside this machine, is there's um, a little porthole which they put their rifles out of. They usually have either FN rifles or they would have these R5s. They would also carry sometimes um, weapons they'd seize from Swapo. Most of these patrols would have a rocket launcher with them, which they are not supp supplied by the South Africans at all. It's specifically that what they've taken from Swapo. Um, they would have Kalashnikovs also at times. They're very, very heavily armed. That's they're they're very strong on firepower. Oh, they're really throwing up the sand over there, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. You get out of that now because that's a turbo. They're 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 very good. used to get stuck a lot in the Shaunas during the wet season. That's around uh, January, February. And we've often seen photos of four or five of them stuck together. And what they have to do is get a big long rope and pull one out at a time. They get furious when they get stuck. He's fairly stuck now, all right. He's digging himself further he in. He is, yeah. That's what these tow bars here, see these? That's what they're for. Oh, yeah. He's out now. He's made it. That's what. That's what. And there they called. go through the trees. Yeah, that's what's called uh, bongo bashing. Bongo bashing. Yeah, yeah. But what, is this a regular occurrence now to patrol along uh, along the border? A slow patrol in Caspiers along the border. Yes. What's happening here is they're looking for spores. As you can see, there's a there's a spores are tracks. Spores are tracks. Yes. There's a gap of about. 50 meters between the two borders which is mostly sand and of course anyone crossing that they'll see the, the spores and what happens is farmers will cross back and forward people coming to buy and sell things it's like our own border at home just because it's there doesn't mean people don't come back and forth just normal social communication well here what happens the they'll see a spore or a track as they call it and they'll get down and they'll investigate and the, usually the Ovamos will tell you that that is a spore of a plant fighter or a Cuban an Angolan soldier and I would just say that is just an ordinary farmer going on his, about his own ordinary business uh, Are they pretty good at knowing what size of shoes people wear? They're excellent they're absolute they will describe the person to you by just looking at their the, the footprint or the spore as they call it they'll, they'll describe whether it's a man woman how old they are it, it's, it's really unbelievable even the white South Africans who work here with them they'll say that they have spent some of these white South Africans have been up here for 10 up to 20 years some of them and they'll say like that, that they have never picked up the, the skill of it at all but they said they, they marvel at the how the Ovambos are able to do it Namibia is due to become independent by next April if all goes well the 50 Gardi can then come home and the Caspier the symbol of South African oppression of Namibians should be thrown on the scrap heap Tom Scully will miss driving the white UN vehicle. The Gardaí come from a tradition of keeping clear of the press. Their standard answer, they would tell you, used to be, no comment and don't quote me on that. But that's changing, and if one lives with them for a few weeks, perhaps they begin to open up a little. They were all most hospitable to me, and when my absent microphone missed the line the first time he uttered it, a little encouragement persuaded Tom Scully to overcome police reluctance to comment and repeat the phrase about the rough border terrain which has given a title to this programme. Well, it's uh, pretty warm in there. It's uh, The driving compartment is pretty small. 
and the heat comes up from below the, at the joint uh, for the gear lever meets the floor and it uh, keeps you nice and warm. Uh, it's a rugged machine and uh, it's uh, tough enough to handle. And the sands are her. <laughs> and the sands are her. <laughs>